in our evening sermons, uh, we have come to Ezekiel's oracles against the nation of Israel and their idolatry. These oracles act as litigation against Israel. So Ezekiel announces the various covenant curses of God's wrath that will afflict Israel in roughly six or so years. Much of what we will read tonight is a repeat of what we saw last week, such as the language of calamity and the covenant curses of pestilence, famine, and the sword. Last week we saw that God is cleansing the land from idolatry through death and destruction of idolaters and their sites of worship. Though these were extreme measures, there was extreme sin and idolatry throughout the land of Israel. The land was given to Israel so that they might worship God, but through their idolatry, Israel had polluted the land. In order for worship to be renewed, God must, God must first humble His people and destroy all the vestiges of idolatry from His land. So with this point refresh in our minds, brothers, we read our passage today. Uh, we'll read and then pray uh, following it. Ezekiel chapter 7. The word of the Lord came to me. And you, son of man, thus says the Lord God to the... Uh, and I'm, excuse me. The word of the Lord came to me. And you, O son of man, thus says the Lord God to the land of Israel. An end. The end has come upon the four corners of the land. Now the end is upon you. And I will send my anger upon you. And I will judge you according to your ways, and I will punish you for all your abominations. And my eye will not spare you, nor will I have pity, but I will punish you for your ways, while your abominations are in your midst. Then you will know that I am Yahweh. Thus says the Lord God, disaster after disaster, behold it comes. An end has come, the end has come, it has awakened against you. Behold, it comes. Your doom has come to you, O inhabitant of the land. The time has come, the day is near, a, a day of tumult, and not a day of joyful shouting on the mountains. Now I will soon pour out my wrath against you, and spend my anger against you, and judge you according to your ways, and I will punish you for all your abominations. And my eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will punish you according to your ways, while your abominations are in your midst." Then you will know that I am Yahweh who strikes. Behold the day. Behold it comes. Your doom has come. The rod has blossomed. Pride has budded. Violence has, gone out into a, has grown up into a rod of wickedness. None of them shall remain, nor their abundance, nor their wealth. Neither shall there be uh, preeminence among them. The time has come. The day has arrived. Let not the buyer rejoice, nor the seller mourn. For wrath is upon all their multitude. For the seller shall not return to what he has sold while they live. For the vision concerns all their multitude. It shall not turn back. And because of his iniquity, none can maintain his life. They have blown the trumpet and made everything ready. But none goes to battle with their multitude. The sword is, within, uh, is without. Pestilence and famine are within. He who is in the field dies by the sword. And him who is in the city, famine and pestilence devour. If any survivors escape, they will be on the mountains like doves of the valleys, all of them moaning, each one over his iniquity. All hands are feeble and all knees turn to water. They put on sackcloth and horror covers them. Shame is on all their faces and baldness on all their heads. They cast their silver into the streets and their gold is like an unclean thing. Their silver and gold are not able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of Yahweh. They cannot satisfy their hunger or fill their stomachs with it. For it was the stumbling box of their iniquity. 
His beautiful ornament they refused for pride, and they made their abominable images and detestable things of it. Therefore, I will make an unclean thing to them. I will give it into the hands of foreigners for prey, and to the wicked of the earth for spoil, and they shall profane it. I will turn my face from them, and they shall profane my treasure place. Robbers shall enter and profane it. Forge a chain, for the land is full of bloody crimes, and the city is full of violence. I bring the worst of the nations to take possession of their houses. I will put an end to the pride of the strong, and the holy places shall be profaned. When anguish comes, they will seek peace, but there shall be none. Disaster comes upon disaster. Rumor follows rumor. They seek a vision from the prophet, while the law perishes from the priest, and counsel from the elders. The king mourns, the princess is wrapped in despair, and the hands of the people of the land are paralyzed by terror. According to their way, I will do to them, and according to the judgments, I will judge them. And they shall know that I am Yahweh. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. Father, our passage, though it takes some twists and turns, avenues, and maybe language that we are not familiar with. Or maybe the syntax messes us up. We don't quite understand what's taking place. Father, we know that you have spoken your word, a word of judgment against Israel. And as we unfold this message and this word tonight, Lord, help us to see the idolatry that is so close to us. And Lord, help us to cling to the God who has saved us. And Lord, help us not to cling to anything else other than you. Lord, please be with me and please be with us as a people. We ask this in your son's holy and perfect name. Amen. In our passage for tonight, Ezekiel continues his strings of his first string of oracles. Remember that the oracles, as a prophetic genre, act as a covenant litigation. Simply put, Israel sinned, so God is announcing his punishment through his lawyer, uh, excuse me, his lawyer Ezekiel. These oracles are given so that Israel would know that it is Yahweh alone who's the one orchestrating the nation's coming destruction. Our text presents three oracles, and these three oracles uh, have been described as alarms. In verses 1 to 4, we see this repeated phrase, the end, the end. In verses 5 to 9, the disaster after disaster. And in the beginning of verse 10, uh, and this is the third alarm, it it uh, becomes, uh, or it states, behold the day, the day. We have three alarms signaling uh, the terrifying day of calamity that will come upon Israel against their sin. Throughout the Old Testament, the day of the Lord, as it's said in our text, could be understood as both a day of God's activity to justly destroy or a day of merciful and gracious salvation. But for tonight in Ezekiel, we clearly see that these alarms are detailing that the day, uh, detailing what the day of destruction will look like and what the effects it will have upon Israel. In our passage, this day of calamity focuses in on two institutions, Israel's cult and its culture. I'm changing the title, I'm sorry. Israel's cult and culture. As we will see Israel's cult, uh, it will have a domino effect upon their culture. I want us to see how when one institution falls, the cult, the other eventually falls itself, the culture. 
These two institutions, cult and culture, will be our main points for tonight. And our second one will have a few subpoints as we go forward. But first, let's deal with the cult. So our first point, the cult. The first two alarms of chapter 8 are found in verses 1 to 4 and verses 5 to 9. These two brief sections describe in stark terms what God's judgment will look like. In verse 3, the first alarm describes God's judgment as an end to the four corners of the land. And God is sending his, his anger upon Israel. And the second alarm, we get a little bit more detail. In verse 5, God's judgment is described as disaster and doom for the inhabitants of the land. In verse 7, the day of judgment is called a day of tumult in contrast to the joy of Israel as they practice their sin. In verse 8, we see God's wrath personified as a pot overboiling and pouring out over Israel's wickedness. So with all this various terminology, uh, it's getting at the fact of God's utter and complete disdain for the sin that pollutes the land of Israel and the people. Notice that verses 3 to 4 and verses 8 to 9 are nearly identical in wording. From these verses, we see why God is coming in His wrath. From these verses, we see why God is coming in His wrath. To summarize, in verses 8 to 9, God says to Israel that He comes to judge you according to your ways, and I will punish you for all your abominations. And my eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will punish you according to your ways, while your abominations are in your midst. That last phrase is important. While your abominations are in your midst then you will know that I am Yahweh who strikes. As we saw last week, and we repeated earlier, God's destruction will come upon Israel because idolatry pollutes the land. Again, the land was given for the worship of Yahweh, yet Israel used it for idolatry, for the abominations in their midst. The main focus of these first two alarms is that God is going to destroy Israel because of their idolatrous practices. Last week I briefly described that idol worship involved at least three things. A location, a people, and a cultic system. What we saw, in these, uh, what we saw was that these sites of idolatry were these major metropolitan areas where idolaters were constantly visiting, right? These are these major sites in which people, the people of Israel and probably various others came to do commerce and had their lives. They would sacrifice offerings or pay a temple fee to be blessed by their deity in these various temple sites. To summarize the main point from last week, these idolaters were seeking the blessing of Yahweh without having Yahweh as their God. You see, they wanted God's blessing of the good life without the blessed God of life. And in turn, as they reject God in his life, they surrender to the death that comes in God's judgment against sin. Without God's mercy poured out upon them by having them as, his, as their God, Israel could only receive God's wrath. So with this very important point refreshed in our minds, I want us to consider the institutions of Israel's cult. Israel's cult. By cult, uh, the term cult, I'm using terminology within the realm of religious studies. I'm not referring to the 20th century aberrant religious groups like Jonestown, right? I have something far different in mind. Within the study of world religions, a cult is simply a synonym for religion. 
a cult or religion can be defined as this. A system of guiding beliefs and practices of a particular religious group or a particular ethnic group or a particular group in general. Simply put, cults are what many people describe as worldviews. Worldviews are these fundamental basic beliefs uh, that typically involve some form of practice to reach an intended goal. So by this definition, the religion of Yahweh, Yahwism, as presented in the Old Testament, can be properly understood as a cult in this religious uh, terminology that I'm using. There was a central worldview belief. Yahweh is the one true God and our covenant Lord. That was the one fundamental orbiting belief. And there was a set of accepted, uh, of accepted practices, the law. But Israel's idolatry, brothers, and this is key, Israel's idolatry followed an opposing belief to Yahwism. Israel believed that they could receive Yahweh's blessing without full allegiance to Yahweh. Brothers, my point is this. Israel was blessed by God when their beliefs and practices revolved around Yahweh's word, around God's word. But what happens, and as we've seen throughout these past week, what happens when Israel's cult, its worldview, its religion, becomes corrupted? Rather than follow the cult of Yahweh, Israel had forsaken the true religion for the cult of the nations. By, by adopting new beliefs or practices, Israel necessarily broke faith with Yahweh. By taking on a new cult, a new system, a new way of life, a new worldview, Israel abandoned their communion with God. Without Yahweh at the center of their lives and identity, the people were corrupted by, by false beliefs and false practices. Their abominations. Brothers, I... As we go through, I'm going to make some key parallels to our day. And I think that this point of application can, be, can significantly aid us, especially during this season. There's much talk today in our circles, especially as we come closer to the election. There's much talk today about the soul of the American nation. On both the right and the left, Political commentators keep declaring that this election will determine what the soul of the nation will be. If one guy wins, then the soul will be this. But if the other guy wins, our soul will be that. Whatever that may be. But brothers, I approach this with humility. This concept... That if this election, if this election, it, it, that it determines what the soul will be. If that's the mindset, these commentators are missing a very important piece of information. They are woefully incorrect to assert this for a variety of reasons. But we can note this. The election of a particular party, a nominee, or policies does not determine the soul of the nation. Let me repeat that again. The election of a particular nominee, party, or policies does not determine the soul of the nation. Brothers, this is key. All this political cycle does is reveal what the soul of this nation already 
is. All this political cycle does is reveal what the soul of the nation already is. This election does not determine or dictate what Americans hold most dear. This election is merely a litmus test of what Americans already hold dear. Brothers, it's easy for me, but I'm going to try to stop myself. It's easy to meander into how we need to turn back to the God of our fathers. Nor am I going to try to tell you exactly how Christians should tackle this election season. That's not for this pulpit. But I do want us to be cognizant of this fact. That the choices before us, either party, are ultimately an outgrowth. They're the natural fruition of what Americans and the larger society already holds dear. And as Christians... We must recognize that our fellow Americans do not follow our God. Let me repeat this again. Our fellow Americans do not, do not follow our God. Let me proceed. Brothers, our fellow Americans have a different cult. For example... Surveys, like the state of theology from Ligonier, makes this abundantly clear. Surveys, like the state of theology from Ligonier, have shown a few things for us as evangelicals, and even as Reformed believers. From this survey done in 2020, we can see that many so-called evangelicals cannot even affirm basic key tenets of of the historic Christian faith. Notice that I did not say Americans. I said evangelicals. They cannot even affirm basic key tenets of the historic Christian faith, such as who is Jesus Christ. Surveys like this is why I find it so perplexing when my fellow believers declare that America is this grand Christian nation when we are provided objective data to prove the contrary. Brothers, it has been easy for the church in the past to see America as a Christian empire. But that empire, if it ever really existed, has fallen. The idea of an American Christian empire, that's gone. We delude ourselves if we think otherwise. America's cult, brothers and sisters, is not the Christian faith. America's dominant worldview is not that of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Brothers, if this is the case, we must recognize our nation's idolatry. We must recognize it as idolatry, and we must respond accordingly. This may be my inner pessimism, or possibly my amillennialism coming out. But just grant me this brief point. In some parts of Christendom, believers, whether implicitly or explicitly, sees America as this bastion of holiness, as a city set on the hill. Rather than see ourselves as exiles in land, we think that we live in the height of the Davidic dynasty. Amen? American believers love that our nation was founded upon Christian ideals and principles. And so they fight tooth and nail for those principles. And I can respect this as an admirable pursuit. 
I can honor it as something that they're trying to do in the name of Yahweh. That they're trying to do this in the name of Christ. But I think that is profoundly and unfortunately a vain pursuit. Brothers, that Christian empire has fallen. That empire has fallen. And it's because our nation turned from the Christian faith to a different cult. To different beliefs and practices. Practices not revealed in God's word. Our nation didn't fall because of of an election. Or a candidate. Or a piece of legislation. Our nation fell because of of idolatry and a false Christianity that birthed the chaos around us. Christianity the days of old did not continue. The cult changed. Brothers, remember that these oracles in this chapter here tonight, in Ezekiel chapter 7, these oracles were presented in our passage, as presented in our passage tonight, were originally announced to exiles who lived thousands of miles off from Israel. These oracles were not for idolatrous Israelites to hear. Catch that again. Please listen. These oracles were not for the people in the land. They were for exiles thousands of miles from the land. These oracles were given to the exiles to help understand, to help understand the destruction that would come to Israel and how they should understand it theologically. The exiles in Babylon would hear of this destruction in the coming years and they would know that it was Yahweh who strikes, as verse 9 states. These exiles, not the idolaters in the land, were given these oracles so that they might repent from their idolatry and know that God is the one true God. Brothers, again, I say this with humility and with sorrow in my heart. For those who want to fight the culture war or to redeem the culture, know what you are fighting against. To use biblical imagery, you are not an Israelite trying to re-solidify the godly kingdom. No, that's gone. You are an exile gazing upon the destruction of your nation. The chaos and evil that we see in our land is not a rallying call to get our act together as Americans. Far from it. It's a sober indictment against America's idolatry so that the Christian church in America would repent from the similar idolatry that our fellow Americans practice. We are called to repent from the American cult. The American cult of self, of pride, of comfort has polluted the Christian church. And it's because we so love the cult of our own making that God brings judgment upon our land. And this is so that we, Christians, exiles, believers, regenerated, redeemed believers, that we would return back to Yahweh's pure worship. Brothers, I say this with all humility, with sadness in my heart, but let us call it what it is. Brothers, let us flee from the worship of the American cult and let us turn back to our God. Brothers, don't suffer in this season as mere Americans, as fruitless, pointless. You end up being the preacher in Ecclesiastes. Vanity, oh vanity. All life is vanity if you suffer as Americans. 
Brothers, don't suffer in this season as mere Americans. Endure this period of humbling as Christians devoted to God and to the work that He has given us to do. As Peter so profoundly summarized the calamity of his day to his fellow exiles of his day, he says this in 1 Peter 4, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or, or as a meddler. And we can add, as an idolater. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in that name. For it is the time for it is the time for it is time for judgment to begin. Where? At the household of God. And it begins with us. What and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Skipping down to verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will, what are we called to do? Entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Brothers, we are called to entrust our souls to our creator. As we give ourselves to him, we will be sustained as we watch the fate of our nation as its cult begins to implode upon itself. Brothers, this implosion of the American worldview will have profound cultural ramifications for us. And as believers, we watch the effects of this implosion as the Israelites did and as they would have heard of the various cultural ramifications of the day of Yahweh upon them, the day of calamity. And this brings us to our second main point for the evening, the culture. As God destroyed the cult that stood in opposition to His glory, against the worldview, against His glory, against the beliefs, against His glory, there would be ripple effects into the greater Israelite community in the land and beyond. If the people's cult would be destroyed, so would their perverse culture that was built upon their beliefs. As the saying goes, as the cult goes, so goes the culture. The people's cult, their shared belief, was the foundation upon which their idolatrous culture developed. For example, turning back to Ezekiel chapter 7 and verses 10 to 12, we see the third alarm, the third and final alarm, sounds for the day of Yahweh's destruction. Behold the day, behold it comes. Your doom has come, the rod has blossomed, pride has budded. Violence has grown up into a rod of wickedness. None of them shall remain, nor their abundance, nor their wealth. Neither shall there be preeminence among them. The time has come. The day has arrived. This third alarm focuses in on the people's causation for what is about to take place. Their pride and violence, as symbolized as a budding staff, has grown significantly. And Israel's prominence came about due to their wealth and prosperity as a nation. In the context of idolatry, pride and violence and prominence through wealth and prominence through wealth, excuse me, and through prominence through wealth, these things were not seen as, vi- uh, as, as virtues, brothers. Or, I'm sorry, these things were not seen as vices. They were seen as virtues. Idolatry, pride, violence, and wealth, greed, these were, these were virtues. In the ancient Near East, 
these, these things were considered as virtues because of how false cults understood the world. For example, to have a, a strong military and economic success was the pinnacle of a nation blessed by a deity. And kings who wielded their rods with violence, they were emanating the violent gods that they worshipped. Also, to be known as a particularly harsh or violent king was to evoke fear and awe from the surrounding nations. These virtues of Israel's idolatry were reprehensible to Yahweh. And this is why His judgment comes upon His people. So with this said, I want to break down uh, the, the remainder of this chapter um, as we see how the day of Yahweh will affect Israel's culture in profound and destructive ways. I have three quick subpoints to break down the remainder of the chapter. Verses 12 to 18, we'll look at the cities. Verses 19 to 24, the ceremonies. And verses um, uh, 10 to, I'm sorry, verses 25 to 27, the civil rulers. So first, in verses 12 to 18, we see how the destruction of Israel's cult would destroy Israel's cities. Again, just to reiterate this over and over again, because this is so important. Israel's sites of idolatry were metropolitan areas. And because these were metropolitan areas, commerce became king. The wealth that was accumulated in these cities provided its residents a sense of security and prominence. And this wealth attracted many people. Rather than give thanks to God for their financial provision, these Israelites attributed their success to the idol, to idols by paying a fee or an offering to it. But once the idol and its cult would be destroyed, the wealth and the veneration of that idol will go along with it. Verses 12 and 13 states, Let not the buyer rejoice nor the seller mourn, for wrath is upon all their multitude. For the seller shall not return to what he has sold while they live. For the vision concerns all the multitude. It should not turn back. And because of his iniquity, none can maintain his life. Through these various curses that Yahweh will inflict, the buyer and seller's financial success will be brought to an utter ruin. doesn't matter who you are. Commerce will cease in the land, and idol worship will dry up along with its resources. Furthermore, even the military prowess of these idolatrous cities will be brought to nothing against Yahweh. The wealth of these sites of worship provided a robust military for its inhabitants. And a strong military force would have been understood as a sign of divine blessing by these idolaters. Similar to how many people conceive of large churches being a sign of, uh, of God's supposed blessing upon them. But this false belief would not last. Verse 14 states, They have blown the trumpet and made everything ready, but none goes to battle, for my wrath is upon all their multitude. The sword is without pestilence and famine are within. He who is in the field dies by the sword, and him who is in the city famine and pestilence will devour. And if any survivors escape, they will be on the mountains like doves of the valleys, all the moaning, each over his iniquity. So in light of the calamity that Yahweh brings, the people are terrified to go to war. And the covenant curses would come upon the citizens with all their horror. Seeing that their wealth and military prowess completely destroyed, the city would undergo deep psychological terror. Verse 18, they put on, uh, verses 18 and 19 detail this for us. All hands are feeble and all knees turn to water. They put on sackcloth and horror covers them. Shame is on all faces and baldness on all their heads. These verses are descriptors of what takes place for those who trust in riches and in their own might. 
the false security that wealth and power provide would be shown for what it is. Israel's cult is what gave birth to this false security. Israel's birth, uh, excuse me, Israel's cult is what gave birth to this false security. And part of God's judgment is showing that their security in such things is utter foolishness. Moving on to our second subpoint, we see how Israel's ceremonies could not save the people. Because of Israel's corrupted worldview and cult, we see how God's day of wrath brings disruption and how they find appeasement from calamity. With their wealth and military power gone, we see a description of Israel scrambling to stop the onslaught from coming. We read in verse 19 these words. They cast their silver into the streets, and their gold is like an unclean thing. Their silver and gold are not able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of Yahweh. They cannot satisfy their hunger or fill their stomachs with it, for it was a stumbling block of their iniquity. In the worship of false gods, Gold and other precious metals were used in making idols and appeasing deities. When the, Israelites, uh, when the Israelites at these places of idolatry throw gold out into the streets, what we are to see is that they are trying to buy Yahweh's favor with the currency of false worship. You see that? They're trying to buy Yahweh's favor with the currency of false worship. As those who believe in the regular principle of worship, we should know how foolish this endeavor is. You cannot appease God with what you think He'll like. You appease God only with what He has provided and revealed in His Word. In verse 20 and following, we understand that the ornaments and gold of Yahweh's temple and treasury were being used in Israel's idolatry. Verse 20, His beautiful ornament they use for pride. And they made their abominable, abominable images and their detestable things to it. Therefore, I will make it an unclean thing to them. And I will give it into the hands of foreigners for prey. And to the wicked of the earth for spoil. And they shall profane it. I will turn my face from them and they shall profane my treasured place. Robbers shall enter and profane it. This gross abuse of Yahweh's instruments for worship would make these instruments profane. Therefore, God would sack his own sanctuary so that these idolaters would not use his treasury for their evil purposes. Verses 23 and 24, we see Yahweh announce that he, that he himself will lead the Israelites away from the land through violent exile. Forge a chain, for the land is full of bloody crimes and the city is full of violence. I will bring the worst of the nations to take possession of their houses. I will put an end to the pride of the strong, and their holy places shall be profaned. We are to see that God will use His enemies, his, the nations, the enemies of the four nations to punish His own people. This is so that the Israel's sites of war, idolatry would be destroyed along with the violence that attended their worship. They often sacrifice children. They use gross, gross means to worship their, their deities, their false idols. And God's purpose in this destruction was to break Israel of their false confidence. It was so that, they, that Israel would break with their false confidence in these sites of worship and supposed refuge. Because these were a place of, of refuge, of military prowess. Finally, God's destruction would decimate the work of Israel's silver rulers and their council that they would provide during the day of Yahweh. In verse 25 we read, 
when anguish comes, they will seek peace. But there shall be none. Let that sit, brothers. When anguish comes, they will seek peace, but there shall be none. Disaster comes upon disaster, report after report. They seek a vision from the prophet while the law perishes from the priest and counsel from the elders. The king mourns, the prince is wrapped in despair, and the hands of the people of the land are paralyzed by terror. According to their way, I will do to them. And according to their judgments, I will judge them. And they shall know that I am Yahweh. As God's wrath comes upon Israel and their idolatry, Israel would seek counsel as to why this destruction is happening to them. The Israelites were trying to figure out what's going on. In verse 26, the prophets, who were supposed to act as spokesmen for God, they would be sought after. But Ezekiel suggests that these prophets will be of no use because God's law has perished from the priests and the elders of Israel. I believe verse 26 is showing that God's previous revelation is to have higher priority than any fresh word from a corrupted prophet. And it's because the people did not already implant God's word into their worldview, into their hearts, that the kings, princes, and rulers would be in terror. And as we've seen week in and week out, God has plainly revealed that He would bring severe judgment against all idolaters. As ignorant sinners, all these people could do was tremble. They could not respond to God's Word. They could not respond in repentance because they rejected it so long ago. Brothers, these three institutions, their cities, the ceremonies of the people, the council of the civil rulers, Brothers, these are all bankrupt when confronted with the glory of God. But note this. These three cultural institutions, the cities, the ceremonies, and the civil council, they're not inherently bad in and of themselves. The culture, these institutions, Israel's culture, as it were, is not inherently bad in and of itself, as a culture. Here's what I mean. Culture, in a generic sense, is not an evil or malicious thing. People get, have a, a boogie word about the word culture. A people's culture is simply an expression of what people already hold dear. Israel's culture, like every other culture that has ever existed, was built upon the people's cult, their beliefs, their worldviews, their shared values. When Israel's cult was corrupted through sin and idolatry, that is when their culture fell. When their cult fell, the culture fell. That is when their cities became sites of idolatry. That's when their ceremonies worshipped idols. And that's when their rulers rejected the word of God. As the saying goes, brothers, as goes the cult, so goes the culture. There are many things that we can take away from this passage but I want us to consider this, brothers. When faced with impending destruction at the hand of Yahweh, what did the people look to? What did the people look to? We saw just a moment ago, they looked to their military power and their fortified cities for protection. But that didn't stop Yahweh. 
They looked to appease God through their ceremonies, through their rituals, through their gold. But their false worship didn't appease Yahweh. Then they looked to the prophets, but they could not hear from Yahweh. They could not hear through the prophet because he did not know Yahweh. At every step of God's judgment, Israel was looking for a way of salvation and they looked for a king to protect them, a priest to atone for them, and a prophet to speak to them. As those who stand before God as condemned sinners, they looked to their own corrupted culture that they had fashioned from their unbelieving worldview and they thought that they could survive the day of Yahweh with it. No, brothers, these idolaters look to their own prophets, priests, and kings. They look to themselves, but they were no saviors. These saviors only brought God's wrath further upon Israel. Brothers, idolaters like this are alive and well today in our nation. For those who would give an ear to the word of God's eternal judgment, most responses are not, What must I do to be saved? That's not the response. When we go to evangelize, as so many of us have, or we get into those evangelistic opportunities, most people gasp at the idea that they are sinners in the need of salvation. For our deluded spiritual culture here in the Deep South, the response of God's coming judgment is not met with repentance. The response to God's judgment against their dear ungodly beliefs is offense and unbelief. Idolaters, idolaters despise when you point out the frivolity of their own lives. For many today, their idols include their false refuge of merit by works. Oh, I'm not that bad. I do good works. I do good things. I go to church every now and then. Some other point to their own spirituality. They think, oh, well, I know what true spirituality is, brother. I know what really loving the Lord's all about. I'm not, you know religious like you and it's always in that same bit you're just trying to slam you just for preaching the gospel of repentance and faith in jesus christ a preaching repentance and they slam you for saying how dare you how dare you and some out of a vain belief that they know better simply believe that god is a myth despite the fact that the knowledge of god is evident to them you see, idolaters think that they, that they themselves are prophets, priests, and kings. And that this, this role that they play of their own devices, that this will secure them in whatever happens in the future. I, idolaters believe that they know better. Idolaters believe that they're right with God. Idolaters know that they can save themselves. But as with the Israelites... God will pour out His wrath upon these idolaters as well in the new heavens, in the new earth. Unless men repent from their idolatry, He will, ju- he will be judged along with His idols. Man will be judged with his cult and his culture. And so, brothers, if this is the case with unbelievers, how much more should we flee from the idols that our American culture wants to bind us to? In our day, the Christian church is told so many things, especially in this political season and in this political cycle. 
on the left, we are told to listen and never to speak. We are told that we don't understand or that we don't want to, uh, that we don't have the right to speak into an issue that God has plainly spoken into. The Christian church is told that they have to get on the right side of history. On the right, we are told that we need to fix everything. The Christian church is told that we need more political prowess and influence. The church by these folks is seen as the pawn that can change the political landscape if we merely give up. If we, Christians, if we merely give up a few points of what we believe, we just give up those little minor convictions. If we simply follow the script, we'll be just fine even if we give up our Christian witness and defame the character of our God for the quote-unquote greater good. Brothers, I say this plainly. This is idolatry. This is idolatry. Pure and simple. As believers, we do not bow down or find our salvation in what those outside our walls declare. Far from it. We do not find our salvation in either party or platform. No. We believe that Jesus Christ is our prophet, our priest, and our king. Jesus Christ came to us preaching the gospel that he saves us from the wrath to come. Whatever may come in his providence. And Christ still preaches to us through the proclamation of the gospel message every single day, every Lord's day. Jesus Christ came to us to eternally atone for our sins. In His perfect atonement, we no longer bear the penalty and power of sin, but have perfect fellowship with our God. As we saw this morning, Christ acted as that sacrifice that expiates our sins and as the propitiation that turns away the wrath of God. And Jesus came to be our King. He sits on high now. Jesus, as King, sits on high now, interceding for us and directing His church through His Spirit. No matter what political season, no matter what the cult is, no matter what the dominant worldview is out there, Jesus Christ is King in here and out there. Brothers, as our King, Jesus Christ is leading us homeward to eternal salvation with Him, free from the presence of sin and the idolatry that so pervades us. He's, he's saving us, brothers, from the presence of sin and idolatry, even the idolatry of the American cult around us. Brothers, I end with these words. As we see the day drawing near, do... As we see the day drawing near, do not forsake Christ by fleeing to some false idols, even in this contentious period. Don't do it. Keep strong. Brothers, please keep strong. Be wise. But most importantly, be faithful. As we see the day, not the election day, but God's judgment day coming near. Remember this exhortation from the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence. That is the promise of salvation in Jesus Christ. That's the promise. Our confidence is in that. Do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, 
We have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for, yet for a little while, and the coming one will come and not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. But what are we, brothers? What are we, brothers? What are you, brothers? We are of those who have faith and preserve our souls. Brothers, entrust your souls to your Creator. Be strong, be faithful, be wise as you proceed. You have Christian freedom, brothers. Use it wisely and unto the glory of God. Brothers, may God be with us all. Let us pray. Father, I thank you that even in the idolatry that we're confronted with, even with things that are difficult for us to work through, especially during contentious times and as the body of Christ, Lord, we ask one thing, that you would keep us faithful. Lord, let us not give up this day Lord, let's not seek uh, vain kings or idols in the things of the American cult or the cults uh, around this world, not in the unbelieving worldview that so pervades our society. But Lord, help us. Help us to be faithful. Help us to endure. And most importantly, Father, help us to entrust our souls to you and to Christ Jesus, who is able to save to the uttermost those who believe in him. Father, please be with you. Uh, please be with me, and forgive me of my imperfect sermon. But Lord, may you be honored and glorified in the truth that was revealed. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We ask this in your Son's holy and perfect name. Amen.